Good morning, all. We are continuing as, I'm going to say as always, although it won't always be the case, but it feels like as always, our time going through the Gospel of Matthew, which is a biography of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, in this kind of passage, we're going to encounter one of the most famous Bible stories of of like all time, certainly in the Gospels and probably the entire Bible. And the incident will take place at sea, in the Sea of Galilee. And what's important to note is that leading up to this story, if you were a first century Jewish person, you would have all these miracle stories in your mind associated with the sea and in the waters because Moses, Joshua, Elijah, and Elisha, they all had some type of miraculous incident with water or the sea. So there's anticipation building. If you were reading this story for the first time and you're out at sea, you're sort of going, what, what's, what's Jesus going to do next? Now, what's important for today is the story is incredibly familiar for, for Christians who have been a Christ, Christians for some time. But we can become so familiar with stories that we begin to kind of just read them over in a haphazard way. We saw that last week with the feeding of the, the 5,000, where there's so much more going on um, that we miss just because, ah, oh, we think we know this story. And in today's story, you're going to see it functions, if we're careful and slow, as sort of a mystery it's like a mystery novel or a mystery movie. And there's all kinds of clues in the text. And there's little threads and crumbs that you're supposed to follow in certain directions. But it's easy just to read it and keep going. But the clues are everywhere. And just like a good mystery movie, you know what happens at the end, right? You look back at the end from the other side and go, oh, how did I not see that? How did I not take notice to this? Or this was right in front of my face and I missed it. But it's at the end when you kind of solve the riddle, solve the mystery, that everything begins to make sense. And so today we have to look for the clues, follow the clues. When there's a thread, we need to keep tracking with it. And then and only then can the big picture come to the surface. So on that note, let's begin. Matthew 14, 22. This is just after last week where Jesus had performed the miracle of the feeding of 5,000, where he multiplies the fish and the loaves and feeds his people in a desolate place. Immediately, immediately after this, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against him. Awesome miracle. Jesus sends his disciples across the sea. Now, one important note, sort of as we get started, that I'm not going to spend too long of a time on because it's not the, the essential point of this story, but it's important to note. Um, Jesus sends the disciples across the sea. They are obedient, and they find themselves in this storm, in this predicament, in the troubled waters. The reason why I want to point that out is because often we can play loose with, with the will of God, and I hear things like this often, and maybe you've said things like this or you've heard other Christians talk like this, where um, if something bad is happening in our life, it, we kind of presuppose that maybe we're, you know, we're not in the will of God or this is God closing a door. And if things are going well, it's like, well, God opened some doors and these things happen. And, and then you kind of feel this kind of emotional level, like I'm in the will of God because everything's working as it should. And I just want to point out that 
the disciples are in a crazy storm precisely because they were obedient to Jesus. He dismissed them. He told them to go to the other side. They listened and now they're in this situation. So it doesn't mean when there's the storm, when there's the wind and the wave and there's all these problems, that doesn't necessarily mean you are somehow being disobedient or outside the will of God. The disciples listen and they find themselves in this situation. And you have to understand it's more than just um, some wind and some wave and a storm. Like water in the Bible functions symbolically. All throughout the scriptures, water represents chaos and death and turmoil. So if you look at the, the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament, you'll hear language like, uh, the waters are going to swallow me, swallow me up. Lord, save me, the waters are rising. And there's image after image of waters coming to take you, to swallow you, to kill you. And it's metaphoric, it's symbolic. It's not, it's not like um, the, the psalmist is poetically writing that he went too far in the deep end and he can't swim. It's this idea, the waters are rising. The flood is going to overtake me. The forces of death surround me and I'm about to be swallowed up by them. And this is heightened by some of the language that's used. So it says in verse 24, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves. The word beaten here, batsanizo in Greek, it means to be tormented. And what's interesting is in the gospel accounts, often this word is used to describe the torment that demons do to people. And so it's almost as if Matthew is personifying the wind and the wave and the storm and giving it like this sort of kind of demonic tormenting feel. It's not just some random wind. It's, it's this catastrophe that's overtaking you and swallowing you up. It's tormenting the disciples. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Important note, the fourth watch. It's the fourth watch. In the timing system of the day, the fourth watch was between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So this is the last part of the night. It is just before dawn, before the sun rises which tells you some important things about this. They've been battling this storm pretty much the whole night. An average kind of Jewish man at this time would wake up when the sun rises up roughly 6 a.m., give or take. So put this in perspective. They've been up battling, trying to make progress on the sea the whole night, and now it's getting to the point when they would usually be waking up after a long night's sleep. So the disciples, the disciples are exhausted. They are terrified. It's... They are experienced at the sea. Some of these guys are like pro fishermen. They know the Sea of Galilee. But for whatever reason, this storm, this wind and wave, it's a tormenting type wind and wave. It's on another level. And they are exhausted. They are tired. They can't make progress. It's as if the waters are coming up to consume them. And they see someone walking by and they're terrified. It's a ghost. Now, Mark, which is the second of the four Gospels, we are taking our time going through Matthew, but Mark is the second. It's additional biography of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And he records the same incident, but he records this other bizarre, this is a bizarre detail. Listen to what Mark says, the same thing. This one little tweak. And he saw that they were making headway painfully. That's Jesus. For the wind was against them. The wind's bashing them. At about the fourth watch of night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. That was a bizarre detail. 
Like, why are you going to include that? You know, and we could try to make it sound deep and significant. Well, the Greek word for pass is perikamai, and it has this deep significance. It's like, no, the word in itself just means to pass someone by. So Mark wants you to have an image in your mind. Mark's saying the disciples are struggling. They're exhausted. They think they're going to die. And Jesus is kind of trying to walk by them, just pass by them. And it's like, why would you include that? Why, why would, I mean, it's there for a reason. This is the word of God. And God saw fit to inspire Mark to record this detail because Mark has every reason not to record this weird detail. Like, A, what does it even mean? B, it's sort of like, seems messed up. Jesus just wanted to go by him and leave him type of thing. Nevertheless, it's there. It's this weird detail. It goes on. Back into Matthew, and Mark records the same thing. It says, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And this is one of the many times where the Lord tells his people to, to not be afraid, right? How many times in scripture do we hear, do not fear, do not be afraid? And what's fascinating is it, it's a command. It's not a, here's a suggestion. You'll do better in life if you learn not to be afraid. It's a command. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. A command from God. And the Greek here is a little interesting in the last phrase. It starts off with take heart. Literally, it means to have courage. Have courage. And then it's followed by this phrase, it is I. And that's two Greek words. Ego, which is the word I, and then ami, which is M. So it's like, have courage. Ego, ami, I am. Do not be afraid with the command. Take courage. Take heart. Let go in me. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, we don't know the motivation of Peter uh, right here. Um, we can try to figure it out, but the scripture isn't concerned with that. But we do know that this took some courage, right? Remember, they're being tormented. They're afraid. They've been battling this thing the whole night. They're exhausted. Nevertheless, when Jesus shows up and says, you better have some courage, don't fear. Peter goes, okay, do not be afraid. Lord, you want me to come out? Tell me to come. I'll walk, I'll, I'll, I'll get there. It's a very courageous thing. It's bold. He's exhausted, tired, filled with fear and doubt. Nevertheless, he's, he's being obedient. He's gonna do it. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Now, there's like a thousand different lessons right there, right? And the lessons are evident to children all the way to adults. And they're relevant and important to children and adults. Like, don't take your eyes off of Jesus. How about uh, in life, sometimes there's storms and there's chaos, but what you need to do is just focus on Jesus. Or, hey, remember, if you take your eyes off of Jesus, that's the moment you begin to sink. Or don't fear just natural things around you like a storm. Understand the supernatural power of God. Like all of those are, those are all true and they're all there. It's a lesson after lesson from this. So Peter begins to sink. Then he cries out, Lord, save me. And oftentimes people will give Peter 
a hard time. And I've been making mention of this so much because it's just, it's a bad habit that people do. They, they bash the disciples and be, Peter, look how, look how horrible they are. It's like, Peter still got out of the boat. One, one person, we'd probably be like the other disciples. I'm getting out of that boat, you know? But Peter does, he gets out of the boat. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Jesus reaches out, pulls him up, and then the statement, You of little faith, why do you doubt? Now, there's an interesting exercise you could do right now is try to picture the tone of Jesus when he has this rebuke towards Peter. Because it kind of reveals to you what you think about God in a lot of ways, how you think he operates. Oh, ye of little faith, why do you doubt? Because you could picture Jesus like this. Peter, you have such little faith, why do you doubt? Or you could do like, uh, when they were making uh, Jesus movies in the 70s and 80s, he was always stoic and had no emotion. Some of you are old enough to remember those. So in, in those movies, he would be like, oh, ye of little faith, why do you doubt? Like no emotion. Or uh, what if you picture Jesus with, like he's embodying his disappointment, like you see the disappointment on his, faith, on his face. You of little faith, why do you doubt? Why do you always doubt? Or picture him smiling. Could you do that? Can you picture him smiling and almost laughing? He get, throws him over on the boat. Jesus gets on. Peter, ye of little faith, why do you doubt? You were so close. Do you know how close you were? You got out. You were like this far away. Why do you doubt again and again? When will you learn? So you see, it kind of reveals a little bit to you about how you picture God and what the character of God is like. And the scripture doesn't tell us. And any one of those responses is perfectly fine. It's not as if one is right and the others are wrong, because God could certainly be like, what's wrong with you? He's God. Do that. He could also, Jesus could be, or it's like, you were so close, Peter. You are so, so close. doesn't tell us. And then it says, after this, that the disciples worshiped him and they call him the son of God. Now this, this can be misleading at this point because we immediately read our understandings of worship and the phrase son of God back into the text. So the word for worship here is proskuneo in the Greek, and it can mean to worship like worship God, but it also could mean something like bow down to a king or show respect or give reverence to someone who's important. So in and of itself, proskuneo can mean anything from worshiping God to giving the utmost respect to a king. And it doesn't quite tell you exactly in what sense the disciples are worshiping him. And then the phrase son of God, in first century Jewish thought, you could call the king the son of God, or God's people were the, the sons and daughters. And so it's not necessarily certain when they say son of God exactly what they mean. Now, I can tell you that I'm near certain they did not mean, oh, 
you must be the second person in the Trinity, an infinite being, the Logos, the word who was always with God. They're not thinking that way. And if you doubt that, we're going to see in a couple chapters that we'll know for sure they don't get who Jesus is yet. Nevertheless, they're getting closer. It's like warmer, warmer, a little closer. Okay, you're worshiping. Maybe this is utmost respect. It hasn't quite crossed over to worshiping like God. And maybe you're saying son of God in the sense like this guy is like a son of David, a king. So closer, warmer, but they're not there yet. And we'll see that in a few chapters. They're not quite there. Now, at this point, I want to back up and take a look at A, the big picture, and B, sort of all the little clues that are around in the text, because Matthew is actually attempting to solve one of the most problematic theological issues. Matthew is actually attempting to solve this massive theological and philosophical problem. And it has to do with the transcendence of God and the imminence of God. So there are two big words. Let me say what I mean. First, transcendence. Transcendence has to deal with that which is above and beyond. And usually it means that which is so above and beyond, it's outside the realm and boundaries of normal human experience. So when we speak of God, we are speaking about an eternal, infinite being. He is holy and righteous. He is nothing like us. God is nothing like us. He's infinite. Like, do you really expect a finite embodied creature can begin to apprehend someone whose being and nature is infinite? Like, you think you just understand infinite being, a holy being, a perfect being, a being without time. He exists outside of time, an all-powerful being without boundaries or edges. It's like he's transcendent. He is so above and beyond us. So above and beyond us. Like, how do you even relate to this person? How do you know that? How do you expect your finite mind to know that type of being? Nevertheless, there's this deep longing in human beings for God to be imminent, and what I mean by that is imminence has to, it has to do with things that are inside of something or things that are close and near. So God is above and beyond in every possible way, but yet it's as if the human being can't find rest or satisfaction until we are somehow, in some sense, near and close to God. But how does the finite bridge what appears to be an infinite gap between their nature and the infinite. It's a massive gulf between God and man. He's above and beyond us, nothing like us. But yet there's something in us that's longing to know him and to be known by him. And so Matthew is wrestling with this and he's trying to solve it with this story and the clues are everywhere. Some of them were a little bit easier to see. Some of them are, are far more difficult. So let's start with this. Jesus in Matthew's gospel has been presented as a new Moses figure. And if you've been tracking with us the whole time, you've seen this in a number of ways. Like go back to the Sermon on the Mount. 
Jesus goes up on the mountain and he comes down like Moses did with the Ten Commandments and the law, but now Jesus has new law, the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, but I tell you. And Jesus is the new lawgiver, a new Moses. And then more recently, last week, Jesus multiplied the bread in the wilderness. And just a 30-second summary from last week was that was a mere image of what took place in the Exodus. Moses went out into the wilderness, the desolate place, the barren wasteland where there is no food and there was a miracle dealing with bread and all of a sudden God's people had provision for it. It's the miracle of manna. So just as Moses took God's people, Israel, into the wilderness and miraculously fed them bread from heaven, Jesus takes his people into the desolate place, the wilderness, the dry, barren, desert, wasteland type of image, and he gives them this miracle of bread. So just as Moses provided, now the new Moses is providing. Now, once you map those upon each other, and now you're confronted with this story, this incident at sea, if you are thinking new Moses, you might be thinking, oh, Jesus is going to do something like Moses did. And what did Moses do with the water? Remember? Moses splits the sea, and God's people are delivered by walking on dry land. And so maybe... If you're keeping track of this new Moses theme, you might be telling yourself, oh, Jesus is going to do something really crazy and cool. He's going to like part the waters and then he's going to walk on the dry land. Or maybe the opposite. Jesus is going to look at the disciples and he's going to part the sea and then the disciples get out the boat, walk on dry land to the shore. But Jesus does not part the waters and walk on dry land. Jesus walks on the water which would make you immediately ask yourself a question. Well, who walks on water in the Bible? In the Hebrew scriptures, if Moses parts the sea, who is the one who walks on water? Habakkuk 3.15, speaking of God himself, Yahweh, that's Yahweh, remember, is the personal name in Hebrew for God in the Hebrew scriptures. Speaking of him, God himself, Yahweh, you trampled the sea with your horses the surging of mighty waters. Psalm 77, 19, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Job 9, 7 through 8, who commands the sun and it does not rise? Who seals up the stars? Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Job in this instance is speaking of God creating the world and he's speaking of God being above and beyond. This is the transcendent thing. God is so transcendent that he commands the sun. And the sun, from an earthly perspective, is the most above and beyond thing in our observable experience. The sun and the stars, they are above and beyond us. We can't even get close to them. But yet this God is so transcendent, he commands the sun and it listens. And then he follows that up with, who alone stretched out the heavens and walked on the ways, trampled the sea? So when you're looking at the Hebrew scriptures, there's one person who walks on the water. It's very interesting. And then once you understand that, you ask another question. Well, who is the one that rescues people from the waters? Psalm 18, 16. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of the many waters. Now remember, waters symbolically are about death. You get swallowed up by the waters. When the enemies are coming to destroy Israel, they're depicted as like a flood coming to swallow you up, to take you down into death. 
So who delivers me from the waters? It's Yahweh. Another one, Psalm 144, 7. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters. So, Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, there's someone who walks on the water, and that's God himself. And then there's someone who rescues people from the waters, from approaching death. It's the God of Israel, Yahweh. Now, there's another important detail. Remember that weird thing about Jesus wanting to pass by the disciples? It's like, why, why was that included? Pass by. It's an image. It's an image that Mark is giving you. Jesus is passing by the disciples. So who walks on the water in the Old Testament? Who rescues people from the waters in the Old Testament? And then who passes by people in the Old Testament? Exodus 33, 17 through 19. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Moses says, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and you will proclaim before, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Then it goes on. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Can't see my face, man cannot see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by which you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. This is weird. Because God is infinite, so he's omnipresent. That means he's everywhere at once but God can choose to manifest his presence in powerful ways. But if God were to manifest the glory of his presence to Moses, he's like, you don't know what you're asking for. If I like showed you some of this, you would die. You can't see me and live. So this is what we're going to do, Moses. I've heard your question. This is the best I can do for you. I'm going to put you behind this giant rock and you're going to hide. And I'm going to... walk by you, pass by you. And then after I've passed by you, you could sort of get a peek at the trailing, fleeting kind of back of my presence. That's all you get. Otherwise you might die. Now, the word for pass by in both of these instances is the Greek word parakamai. And that's the same Greek word that was used in the New Testament when Jesus passed by the disciples on the boat. Now, if you're a student paying really close attention, you're going, wait a second, you just pulled a fast one because you're saying in the New Testament in Mark, he used Greek, and then you're talking about Greek in the book of Exodus, which is the Old Testament, but gotcha. The Old Testament isn't written in Greek, it's written in Hebrew. Important note. By the time you get to the first century when Jesus is alive, the vast majority of people in this big giant region aren't reading from the Hebrew scriptures. They're reading a translation of the Hebrew scriptures called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And it makes sense that most people are reading the Septuagint because Greek is the common language of the people. It's like the lingua franca, it's what everyone's using. 
Like you may have other languages that you know, but when you go to the market, you use Greek because everyone just sort of knows that at this point. And so the Septuagint is what everyone's reading. So if you were to encounter someone on the street and they were to quote some passage in the Old Testament, chances are very high that they might quote the Greek Septuagint rather than the Hebrew, the Hebrew scriptures at this point. It's sort of like um, in early American history, everyone was reading what? The King James Bible. If you're unfamiliar with the King James Bible, it's the one that has the yees and the thous, like thou didst not come ye from here. And you're going, I don't even know what this meant. Um, so it's not as if there's tons of Bible translations. You just got the King James 1611 English translation. That's what everyone's using. That's what everyone's quoting. In Jesus' day, that's, that's the case for the Septuagint. Now, when the Septuagint translates these Hebrew scriptures, the word it chooses to use to describe Yahweh passing by with his glory is perakamai. And Mark chooses and employs the same word to describe Jesus passing by the disciples on the boat. You see this theme of passing by develop in other places in the scripture. Here's another one, Exodus 34, five through six. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord, Perekamai, passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. And then God goes on to describe his character. Job says this same thing. Job 9, 8 and 9, 11. Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the ways of the sea? Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Now that top verse, we already looked at, right? We read that. Who's the one who tramples on the water? Where it's God. But then Job is familiar with our problem. He's acutely aware of the transcendence problem. Job says, the God that I worship, he passes by me. I don't even see him. He moves on. I do not perceive him. He knows the problem. I am but a mere finite mortal man. How do I begin to perceive the holy infinite one? I mean, sometimes we just take for granted things like, oh, you can get to know God. Like, what do you even mean by that? There is a being whose nature is infinite. And so Job is going, where do I even begin? I can't even perceive him. He is above and beyond. He is holy, righteous, infinite. I am mere mortal, finite embodied creature. There's too big of a gulf, too big of a gap. So Job is quite familiar with the transcendence problem. Now there's one other thing. Before we do that, remember, when you're thinking about these issues and you're following the clues, you should be asking yourself, well, who's the one who walks on the water? Who's the one who rescues people from the water? Who's the one who passes by people so they don't behold the pure presence of, uh, and glory? So those questions are going in your head. And then you add another piece. It's really easy to miss. So in the Septuagint, that Greek translation, um, there's an interesting way something is translated going back to Exodus 4. And for those of you who are familiar with kind of the Old Testament stories, Exodus 4 is one of the most popular ones. It's where God speaks in the burning bush. And even if you weren't Christian, like 30 or 40 years ago, just culturally, you would know this story because every Easter, uh, 
Charlton Heston Ten Commandments movie would play like three or four days in a row, and it was like a cultural activity. Now, it didn't matter if you're a Christian or atheist, you just sat around the TV and you watched it. And in the burning bush, you remember, Moses says like, who, who, who am I to say is sending me? Like, what is your name? And the voice from the burning bush says, in the Bible and in the movie, I am that I am. It's a very deep, like powerful voice. I am that I am. Now, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation, which everyone is reading at this time, the way you say I am is with two words, ego, emi. So when the burning bush says, I am that I am, on the bottom, you see it correspond to those Greek letters, which you don't, don't worry about reading, but it's ego, emi, ho'an, ho'an. I am that I am. And if you want to say I am in reference to the great I am, the way you would say that is ego, emi. We go back to our story in Matthew. When Jesus comes walking on the water, he tells the disciples, take heart, have courage. And then it said, it is I. But in the Greek, it's not necessarily it is I. It's take courage, ego emi, I am, do not fear. Now, who is the one who tells you all throughout the Old Testament scriptures, do not fear? Jesus is about to pass by them as the one who walks on water and the one who rescues people from the waters. And he tells his followers, his people, the disciples, you need to have some courage. Ego, me, I am. Therefore, do not fear. Matthew is solving the transcendence problem. He is saying that in the person and work of Jesus Christ, Yahweh, God himself, has taken up human flesh and bridged the gap between the infinite nature of God and the finite nature of human flesh. And in Jesus Christ, you have God and man, God himself wrapped in human flesh. And the great gap is being done away with, and the two sides are brought together. The two endpoints are found in the person of Jesus. And once you understand the story that Matthew's telling you, you go, oh, this is what he's been trying to do all along. Where, where does Matthew begin? It begins with the genealogy. If you were here with us that whole time, right after the genealogy, there's the story of the birth of Jesus. Behold, you will have a baby and you shall call his name Jesus, but he's also to be called another name. Do you remember? Emmanuel, God with us. In the face of Jesus, you behold the face of God. He is true God and true man. The gap has been bridged. The transcendent has become imminent that which is above and beyond and so far outside of all human experience is now in human flesh. He's become one of us. He's become one of us. Now, this is, this is really important and it relates to another massive uh, lesson from this story. And the lesson from this, this lesson in this story is uh, it's missed time and time again. 
I'm telling you, when you read the story of Peter about to drown, uh, it gets skipped every single time. I'm gonna tell you what it is. And at first you're gonna say, yeah, I knew that that's no big deal, but it is a big deal and we miss it. What is the major point? Like the main point of Peter on the waters. The major point in that story is that Peter does not drown. He doesn't drown. And again, I know you're going, yeah, we got that. We knew that Jesus rescues him. He doesn't drown. It's not a big surprise. No, wait a second. When we look at this story, time and time again, we tell it in a certain way. You need to know that you better keep your eyes on Jesus. Otherwise you'll begin to sink. If you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, then you can walk. But if you don't, you take your eyes off of him, you take your eyes off the cross, then you begin to sink. Or, you know, you're in a storm and you can focus on your external circumstances. But if you keep your eyes on Jesus, everything will be all right. You won't begin to drown. Yes, that's all true. Fair enough. So, so don't hear me saying you don't need to keep your eyes on Jesus. You absolutely need to keep your eyes on Jesus. But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is... Peter is overwhelmed with fear and doubt. And in his fear and doubt, he takes his eyes off Jesus. Nevertheless, Peter doesn't drown. Jesus still saves him. Do you follow this? Jesus still saves Peter. He takes his eyes off. He's worried. He sees the waves and he has fear and doubt and it overwhelms him. And he doesn't keep his, his eyes fixated on the one solution and he falls into this pitiful state where as a grown man, he's going to get swallowed up in the sea and he just helplessly kind of cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus still saves him. Now, why do you need to hear this? Because yes, you should keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Things will go better for you if you do. But you don't need a savior who will only save you when you're behaving perfectly. You need a savior who will save you in whatever pitiful state he finds you in. You don't need a savior who will only show up to rescue you on your best day. You need a savior who saves you and rescues you and gives you his hand on your worst day. And that ties, in, ties into the transcendence issue because if this savior is gonna do that, he better be imminent. He better be close and near and know your name and know every hair on your head. He better be able to reach down and give you a hand and pull you from the waters. But he also better be transcendent because this savior, this rescue better be done by an all powerful, infinite being who actually has the ability to pull you up out of the waters. So you better hope he's imminent, but you better hope he's transcendent. And so in this story, Matthew is showing us who Jesus truly is. The infinite one has become one of us. And in our fears and doubts, in the storms of our lives, in the, in the terror that we create by our own actions, in whatever pitiful state he might find himself, or us in, we cry out, Lord, save me. And he saves us. Peter doesn't drown. Because if you had to keep your eyes on Jesus the whole time in order to be rescued, you ain't going to make it, man. You're, if the point of this story is, if I take my eyes off of Jesus, I'll drown. We're missing it. Now, again, I want to balance this. Do your best to keep your eyes on Jesus. Everything will go better. 
but praise be to Jesus Christ that when we're defiant, rebellious, overcome with fear and doubt, he still sees fit to reach down in the water and pull us up. It's called grace. We didn't deserve it, but he gives it to us. And if your rescue was dependent upon you always keeping your eyes just right, fixated on him. Like I said, some of you are making it to the end of the week. Some of you are making it to the end of the day. Some of you ain't even making it out of this church service. Augustine, a fourth century theologian, says it like this. Let Peter, about to sink in the waves, cry out and say, Lord, save me. The Lord reached out his hand. He chided Peter saying, oh man of little faith, why did you doubt? That is, why did you not? Gazing straight at the Lord as you approached, pride yourself only in him. So he's saying, why Peter, did you not hope only in Jesus? Why did you not pride yourself only in the Lord himself? Nevertheless, he snatched Peter from the waves and did not allow him who was declaring his weakness and asking the Lord for help to perish. He's drowning and he's crying. He took his eyes off, but the Lord would not allow him to perish. Now that theme plays out again and again. Because later, what will Peter do? Will he take his eyes off? What will the disciples do? On the night Jesus is betrayed, right? They scatter. What does Peter do? He gets out of the boat, right? And he follows Jesus. But then the external forces start to appear. Hey, aren't you one of those disciples? Aren't you one of those followers? Aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? And what does Peter do? Deny, deny, deny. And Jesus had every right to reject him. I'm done with you, man. I spent a couple years trying to train you. But how does the story end? How does Peter's story end in the gospels? Do you remember? We're at the sea again. We're by the waters. And even though Peter has failed again and again and rejected and denied Jesus in the hour of most need, Jesus appears to Peter on the water once again rescuing him yet again, restoring and reconciling their relationship yet again. And this time, Peter doesn't walk on water. Remember what he does? He jumps out of the boat and swims. And Jesus is there again to the rescue, offering restoration and reconciliation. Thank God our rescue isn't dependent upon us displaying perfect obedience. Thank God that he comes to earth, to the waters, and reaches down and takes us time and time again. Now, what I want you to do right now is think about how many times God has done this for you. Because it's easy to forget and by the way, this is actually the secret to keeping your eyes on Jesus. One of the best ways you can fuel future obedience to Jesus is to recall and remember all the times he was faithful to rescue you when you did not deserve it.
because the more you walk with Jesus and the more grace and and times he's rescued you and saved you, the more you call that to mind. Then when you're looking at him, you can say, I have good reason not to fear this storm. I have good reason to trust him. So what you do is you, you remember and you recall and you have those past actions of God's faithfulness fuel your obedience in the future. So like do this right now, like seriously, just start thinking of some times. And obviously there's when you first became a Christian, that's a huge moment, but there's other times. Maybe there's small things, maybe there's large things, but I guarantee you, most of us have forgotten many of them. Cause that's just what we do. Like picture um, a couple who's been married for 50 years, been married 50 years and you go, oh, remember our 37th anniversary? Yeah. And then you start kind of triggering some memories and then you remember the vacation you went on and then the husband remembers how his wife surprised him in all these wonderful ways. And it wasn't that he permanently forgot about him, but they weren't like here at the front of his mind. And then he goes, I remember the vacation. I remember the gift. I remember how you surprised me. And then he looks at his wife and says, I love you so much. Because those memories of old are fueling future love and faithfulness. So before we go to communion, we remember the many times we've been rescued and restored and reconciled and forgiven and given grace when we took our eyes off of Jesus. Bring those to mind, have them fuel future faithfulness. You know, there's, there's dozens after dozens. And if you've got nothing, you still have the cross. And if you're here today, you still woke up breathing. That breath in your lungs is a gift, unmerited, a gift. Now, as we enter communion, there's one last thing. When does, when does Jesus show up to save his people. When does he show up to save the disciples? When does he show up to save Peter? It's at the fourth watch, which is what? 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. right before the rising of the sun. It's like when they're exhausted, they've been working the whole night. They're like, can this get any worse? Can the night get any darker? It's the worst. But what you need to know is that it's cluing you in. Yes, it's dark and there's wind and wave, but the sun is about to rise. So when does Jesus rescue Peter? When does Jesus rescue the disciples? when the sun's about to rise. Now there's another occurrence of this. At the end of the gospel of Matthew, there will be one more, the great kind of ultimate rescue, restoration, reconciliation. Because when it appears that Jesus is gone, he's left the boat, he's nowhere to be found. Very early, after the Sabbath, Towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. The Son of God is in the business of rescuing people at the rising of the sun. And after these women go to the tomb, verse 9, Behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him, maybe for the first time in the fullest sense. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. 
Go and tell my brothers, the disciples, to go to Galilee. There they will see me. The Son of God rescues his people with the rising of the sun. The Son of God tramples the waters, the wind, and the wave with the rising of the sun. And finally, and most importantly, the Son of God tramples Satan, sin, and death with the rising of the sun. Let's stand as we take communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this is my body given for you. Take this and remember. So what are we doing? We're remembering not only his death, but right now we're remembering the countless times he's rescued us. He's so good, he's rescued you so many times that you're unaware of. Stuff happened, you're not even aware of how he protected you, how he saved you and gave you grace and mercy. So we take this bread, we remember what it took, the cross. And likewise, Jesus takes the cup, the blood of the new covenant. And so we remember his faithfulness and now we use that as fuel for future faithfulness on our part. So as we take the blood of the new covenant, his blood shed on our behalf, we pledge our allegiance and faithfulness to a God who has been consistently faithful to us. And so Lord, we say thank you that even when we've failed and faltered and we're overtaken with fear and doubt, you saw fit to give us mercy and grace and raise us from the waters. We give you our allegiance. And so, Father, as we close with one song of worship, we pray that your son would be honored. You are the holy, infinite one, above and beyond, beyond human reach. But we give you praise today and thanks that in your mercy and in your grace, you saw fit to send God the Son, the fullness of who you are, and that you sent him to come into this world, to go into the waters, to death itself, and to rise in power and glory and take us with him. To Jesus Christ be all the honor, the glory, and the power. Amen.